This morning's reading is from James 3, not James 2, so turn to 3, 3, 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Welcome back to James. As you just heard, it's not a traditional Mother's Day text, right? But after a month off, it's good to be here again. And I think, moms, if you listen carefully and listen well, you'll find lots of help. Uh, you've, you've heard me say some version of this before, but by God's design, the church, the people of God, Christians, are largely divided into two camps. In one camp are those who love the lofty ideas of Scripture, the, the, the glory and magnificence of Jesus Christ and the passages that talk about that from way high up and his majesty and glory. And then there's the other half of the church that says, all right, well, let's get to it. (laughs) What do we do with this? How do we live this out? What difference does it make? There's sick and hurting people and we need to help them. And, And so we're all meant to be some of both for sure. But generally speaking, the church is divided into two groups. This message is largely for that second group. You want to get to it. How do we do this? How do we live out this, this Jesus, this magnificent Jesus and daily life. I, I, hope you, I hope you find help to that. But before we get to the text itself, let's back up just a, a little bit. It's been a while since we've been here, so let me remind you of the overall thrust of James's letter. It is that, here's his overall thrust of the whole letter of James, it is that the very nature of the Christian life is this, hearing the word of God, believing it, and then acting on it all in the power of God. So that's, for James, that's the simplest way to describe the Christian life. We, we hear the word of God, we believe it and are transformed by it, and then we act on it. And all of that is by God's power in us. Let me say it a different way. James argues that the grace that God gives for the forgiveness of sins, we want our sins to be forgiven. Well, the, the grace that God gives to forgive our sins in Jesus always also produces increasing obedience in us. So that's really key. I'm going to say that again, lock that in, listen to all of the rest of James with that ringing in your ears. The grace that God gives for forgiveness of sins in Jesus 
always also produces increasing obedience to Jesus. Okay, so no increasing obedience, James says, no forgiveness of sins. Now let me be clear. What he does not mean is that our increased obedience causes the forgiveness of our sins. What he does mean is that it always flows from it. That's absolutely critical if you're going to read James rightly. James warns then that we must not, and you can see it up in the top left corner of the screen, we must not therefore be hearers of God's word only, but doers also. For such hearing, the kind that only hears, is useless, he says. Okay, so again, you've heard all that. One more thing you've already heard. To that end, much of James's letter describes and commands the kind of doing that God's grace produces in his forgiven people. So again, be not hearers only, the rest of the verse says, but be doers also. James largely is meant to help us understand, well, what kind of doing? What, what do I need to do when I hear? What, what is the doing that God requires of me? Most of this letter is meant to explain that. Our passage for this morning is no exception. That's the point of this passage. In it, James describes one aspect of the kind of conduct that flows by the power of the Holy Spirit in us from the forgiveness that is ours. So in particular, he wants to talk to us about how we talk. Okay? How many of you have used more than five words this morning already? All of you, right? This passage is for you. Listen carefully. I'm going to give you the whole message in one clause, a long hyphenated lots of commas clause, but it's one clause. And again, I want you to hear the rest of the sermon through this. In fact, the rest of the sermon is just unpacking each of these. So here it is. In, in mostly in reverse order from how James presents it, here's how I'm going to present it. Human speech, by its very nature, is more powerful than it seems like it should be. Okay? You got to get that. Human speech, by its very nature, is more powerful than it seems like it should be. In particular, speaking wrongly, saying wrong things, bad things, ungodly things, often does an outsized amount of harm. Third, for that reason, Christians need to be really careful how we talk. Fourth, doing that is really hard. (laughs) And fifth, because of that, the people in the church who talk the most, which are teachers, need to be extra careful. We need to be careful who we appoint as teachers, and we need to be careful if we want to be teachers. So that's, that's sort of the whole of this passage in five simple clauses. So let's, let's pray then, and then consider each of these, that we might speak in a manner pleasing to God. Thank you, God, for every passage in the Bible. No one passage is sufficient for us to live as you mean us to, to know who you are and we are and what it, what it means to live in this world in a manner pleasing to you. But the whole, together, all of your word is what we need. It is sufficient to equip us for every good work. And so we need the passages that describe your glory in magnificent terms and the glory of Christ and all that he has accomplished and the power of the Spirit dwelling in us. And we need all those. We need all those as the backdrop and the foundation upon which all of your commands make sense, but we also need your commands. Apart from your help, we wouldn't know how to turn that that greatness and that glory and that majesty and that power and 
that grace and that mercy into action. We have it, and we're thankful for it. One of the more practical passages in the Bible. I pray that we would lean into it, that it would be our increasing desire as our hope in the promises of Jesus grow, that our actions consistent with the commands of Jesus would grow. Not mainly out of an act of self-control or self-discipline, but mainly out of an act of increasing satisfaction in who you are for us in Jesus. Please do that good work and more for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so one main argument, five main links in the chain. It's not clear to me why James linked them or put them in the order that he did, why he framed it exactly the way he did, um, but I, I think we'll be able to see his argument and reasoning most clearly by looking at it almost in exactly reverse order. I'm almost going exactly backwards from how James presents it. I think it'll help us to see his argument more clearly, what he's actually getting at, and what we're meant to do about it. All right, beginning with the outsized power of our words. As a husband, father, son, brother, friend, pastor, person who's gone to do missions work, I've continually seen words, mine and others, have an impact that went way past what it seemed like they should have. I've watched words, again, mine and others, cause profoundly deep laughter, gladness, sadness, pain, healing, suffering, and even new life. Sometimes it was the result, or sometimes the result was immediate and obvious, and other times I only found out later how the words that were said affected people. It's hard not to have examples of this flood into my brain. It's just all week I was thinking about this, the power of words in my life. Nearly 40 years later, I turned 46 recently, nearly 40 years later, so somewhere in the late 70s or early 80s, I can still remember one, one, uh, I guess, teasing or sort of mocking words that someone said to me, and and one uh, word of encouragement. All these, and and they didn't even really, they weren't even really thinking about what they said. One was my cousin. I, is moose a thing? Does moose still exist for hair? Yeah, it's still around. Okay, well, it was big time in the, in, when I was young. And I, I had somehow figured out that what looks neat is to get like a pound of it on my hand and, and just plaster my hair down on my head. And I thought that looked really cool. And my, my cousin, in all his subtleness, said, you look like an idiot. And, and I probably did, but I remember that's 40, 40 years ago. Like it was just a throwaway thing. He'd said lots of worse things to me than that. But for whatever reason, all these years later, I changed my hairstyle because of that. It looks like this and not like that, partly because of what he said. But all these years later, that still sticks with me. And another one, there was this balloon. I was at a buddy's house, really young. I don't know how young. And we saw this balloon in the sky. with It obviously had a note tied to it. And it was floating across the sky, and we said, well, we got to get this. This might be, might be important. And so we took off running across the field, uh, thinking it was going to land at any moment, but it just kept going and going. And so we kept running and running. And before I realized that it wasn't we, it was me. And, and I was the only one going, and they stopped, and they said, I don't care what it is. I, it's not worth it. And I, I just kept going, and I finally got it, and it wasn't anything. I don't even remember what it said. But what I do remember is when I got back, 
my buddy said, man, you can run a long ways. And that stuck with me. It changed the way I, I viewed sports and myself. I'm like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a long-distance runner uh, when I was six or whatever I was. And the point is, neither one of those things should have had anywhere near that, that impact, but they did all, all these years later. They, again, they probably didn't even really think what they were saying, but they shaped me. Well, James wants his readers to understand that spoken words, when we speak, when we speak, our words, by their very nature, are far more powerful than it seems like they should be. That's the point of verses 3 and 4. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the, the will of the pilot directs. And another one. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. We looked earlier in chapter 1, verse 26, at how a relatively small bridle is unexpectedly able to control a comparably powerful and large horse. In our passage for today, James adds two more to it. The, 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 the unexpected way a relatively tiny rudder is able to control a comparably enormous ship. In a slightly different way, he's about to mention in the next in the passage we'll look at in a little bit, how a tiny spark or a little flame can set ablaze an entire forest or an entire field. Little things can do produce outsized results, things that seem to go way beyond what that little tiny thing should be able to do. And the main point that he's making, again, is that our speech, when we talk, kids hear this. Parents hear this. When you talk, your words have a far greater impact than you realize. And there's two keys for us to see in that. One, if we're to really understand James and really understand the world we live in and, and how our words work, we need to understand first that this is God's design. Get this. This isn't an accident. It's not random. It's not chance. It's not a fluke. It's not a ripple in the cosmos. It is God's design that our words would function way beyond what they seem like they should. God created, ordered, sustains, and reigns over the world right now by his words. Jesus himself in John 1 is called the word of God. God has chosen to bring eternal life, salvation to mankind, to people from every tribe and tongue and nation by the word of the cross. To accomplish so much with words, God put a lot of power in them. They're supercharged. They've got turbo. That's James's point here. Think on this for a moment, Grace. It really is profound. This isn't the only thing God has done that to. If you think, in, in kids, here's your assignment. Write this down, somebody. I didn't write it down anywhere else. But see if you can think of, parents help them, see if you can think of one or two other things that the Bible says God has supercharged. There's, num there's a, a number of them, and you see it all over the place. Mother's Day is a hint. But God has supercharged certain things because he means to do remarkable things through those things, and speaking is one of them. Our words are unexpectedly powerful because God has supercharged them, and he's done so because he's chosen to do unexpectedly significant things through them. Proverbs 15.4 captures this simply. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So simple. It's such a simple way to capture the fact that our words have outsized power infused in them by God. 
We must therefore always keep in mind before and during and after we speak that every time we speak, we are setting into motion something unbelievably powerful. It's like we're lighting a fuse to a bomb. Now, the problem with that is bombs are kind of only used for bad things, although maybe mining or something good. But the point is, every time we speak, we're lighting a fuse to something you can't undo that is way outsized in its power. Keep that in mind, Grace. That's God's design. And the second key, which leads to the second point, and that's at the heart of this passage, is that although the outsized God-infused power of our words is meant to be used for great good, our speech is often, again, this is what James is mainly getting at in this passage, it's often used to do outsized harm. It's often used to do great damage. That's the second point. The outsized power of our words to do harm. And we see that in 5 and 6. Chances are good. Not, I thought about asking you to do this, but that, that's not very fun. If you think back on your most painful moments on earth, maybe don't do that. <laughs> do it later or something. But think back on your most pain, if you think back on your most painful moments on earth, two things. You, you all come to my office for two main reasons. One is some physical trial or death or some kind of suffering or physical ailment. And the other is that someone said something or is in the process of saying something that cut you deeply. More than any other two reasons, those are the two reasons people come into my office. The simple fact of the matter is that words can and often do cut very deep. This is always a problem in all of the world, but especially so, James wants us to understand, within the church. We've been given the words of eternal life. And so it's especially problematic when we use words to cut and hurt and cause pain. And so we see this We see this in verses 5 and 6. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, the parts of our body, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That's a big deal. James was not intending to be overly technical in his descriptions of the negative effects of ungodly speech, in, in describing them as staining the whole body and setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell, he simply meant for, to help his readers see that their words, because they've been so infused with the power of God, can have devastating effects if used improperly. In fact, to really drive the idea home, you, maybe you see this already, but his descriptions got increasingly bad. He started off with a stain, you, you know, like, Stains are no fun, right? You don't want stains on anything. But it's, it's an inconvenience. But he doesn't stop there. He says, that it goes, he goes from staining, which is frustrating, to, wor- to words burning things down. And then he ends with, where do these come from? Where do they come from in us? And his answer is, they come from the pits of hell, which is as bad as it gets. Again, who among us hasn't felt the sting of someone's careless or outright malicious words? I shared with you a non-exhaustive list of some of the kinds of words that the Bible condemns in, in this way a few, few weeks ago. I'll just quickly read it over again. Blasphemy. Words of blasphemy are the worst of all. Words that glorify evil or promote evil. Gossip. Grace, don't talk about people when they're not around. This is what James has in mind. Anger, wrath, 
malice, slander, obscenity, lying, defiling, corrupting, harshness. Don't speak in ways that are unnecessarily or unhelpfully abrasive. Foolishness. Proverbs is filled. If you want to know if you're a fool, just read the Proverbs. It'll tell you. You are. Filthiness and crude joking. Don't don't joke about things that the Bible calls evil and wicked and disgusting. Careless. This is the one that we're going to talk more about in a minute. But careless, (laughs) rash, hasty, irreverent babble. Don't talk if you don't need to talk. And don't talk if you don't have some good, God-glorifying purpose behind your words. My my family still teases me, not this one, my my birth my I was gonna say my normal family, but they're definitely not normal. But you know what I mean. My parents, my parents and my sister, they still tease me about the fact that one day as a non Christian, I was just seeing these words cut our family apart, and I just in exasperation yelled out, Sarcasm is killing our family. And it was. Don't do that. The common thread in each of these types of speech, along with all the other kinds of destructive speech, is that their content is rooted in things that are not good, not beautiful, and not true. And on top of that, their motivation is not love. That's what all bad words, bad types of speech have in common. They're not aimed at what is good and beautiful and true, and they don't flow out of a heart of love and a goal of love. These kinds of speech are so corrosive that it's even hard to quantify marriages, families, organizations, denominations, nations, and churches have all been ripped apart and burned down by people who speak in these ways. Grace, I'll mention some more specific application at the end, but let's not move on without pausing for just a moment. Stop right now and commit ourselves to avoiding this kind of talk at all costs. It might, you've seen this, okay, moms, it's Mother's Day, so listen. I'm hijacking Mother's Day to get you to listen. It might feel right in the moment. It might feel just in the moment. Your kid did this or your husband did that. It might feel just in the moment. It might even have snuck out before you could grab a hold of it or before you realized it. It might be a reaction to some real pain that someone caused you. There might be any number, and I've I've heard and and given a lot of them. There might be any number of understandable, even relatable explanations for why you talk trash. But explanations and justifications are not the same thing. James needs us to see this. It is never right to speak ungodly content flowing out of ungodly motives. It is never right to use this power of God that he put into our words for life and building up for destruction. If this is something you struggle with, which of course we all do, James says, confess it to God right now and maybe to the person that you need to confess it to. Determine in the Holy Spirit's power to turn from speaking in these ways and walk then in a fresh sense of the forgiveness that Jesus purchased for you on the cross and that became yours forever when you first placed your faith in him, even if that is right in this moment right now. So Confess these things to God, and if you need to, confess them to the person that you spoke this way to. Your forgiveness is secured in the cross, as you do. Our speech has outsized power, Grace, and James wants his readers to know that that power is often used, even within the church, for great harm. Importantly, we're led to believe from the context that this wasn't a theoretical thing, but rather the people to whom James was writing were really dealing with this. They were really talking 
poorly and destructively to each other, and he wanted to stop it for the sake of the glory of God and the health of the church. That leads to the third aspect of his argument and the most obvious application. What do we do with all this? What do we do with the fact that speech is so powerful and oftentimes is used for destruction? We need to be really careful how we talk. Really careful. God, The God-designed powerful nature of speech means that as Christians, we need to do we need to do more even than simply try to avoid ungodly talk. We need to work hard to not say ungodly things, but to consciously and intentionally use our words to build up every time, every word. Failing to do so, failing to do so by those calling on the name of Jesus, James insisted, is both foolish and it's unnatural. It's foolish and it's unnatural. It's foolish in that it diminishes our praise to God. That's 9 and 10. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For from the same mouth comes blessing and curse. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. It's foolish. My my southern Christian friends like to say, you kiss your mama with that mouth? Same thing. That's the, that's the southern translation of James 9, 3, 9 and 10. To be a Christian, let me say this in a more theologically sound way. To be a Christian is to know the supreme glory of God. If you don't know the glory of God, you can't be a Christian. To be a Christian is to know the supreme glory of God. To know the supreme glory of God is to delight in praising God. God, you you are great, and, and I delight to tell that back to you. To do so in the most appropriate way, the, the way that's most consistent with who God is and the nature of our salvation, we need to... Seek continually to do that with the most holy vessels. Well, here's what James is saying. We stain the vessels of our mouths and diminish the sweetness of our praise when we offer it to God out of a mouth that also curses God's people alongside of our worship of God. It dishonors God when we use the same instrument for both righteousness and sin. It is the highest order of folly. Not only is speaking in ungodly ways is Christians' folly, it's also to act contrary to our very nature as Christians. That's 11 and 12. Does a spring pour pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? The answer is no. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? The answer is no. Or a grapevine produce figs? No. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Jesus said it like this, Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Nope. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Fresh and salt water cannot come from the same source. Olives, grapes, and figs cannot come from the same tree. And blessing and curse can't come from the same person, the same mouth, the same tongue, who uses it to call on the name of Jesus naturally. Each of those things are equally unnatural. They're not designed for those dual purposes. Where we find such things, you know instantly something is off. If you see an apple tree with watermelons growing out of it, you know something funky is going on. In the same way, when we use the same mouth to praise God and to curse people, something very unnatural is taking place. Grace, if we are to avoid folly and act in a manner consistent with our new natures in Jesus, we must be increasingly careful with our speech, James says. 
We cannot be casual or flippant or indifferent, just letting whatever comes out come out in our manner of speech. Much less can we allow evil, wicked, or harmful words. We must guard our words with great care. What's more, this is not only true because our words cause can cause so much harm in others, but also because they are one of the best indicators of the condition of our hearts, even our very salvation. Jesus could not have been any clearer when he said to the religious leaders of the day who thought they were pleasing to God, but in fact weren't, he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you got to unpack this. this, is a different sermon, but take this seriously, Grace. For by your words, you will be justified. I thought it was by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Well, it is. But by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. James warned his readers of the destructive power of their words, both because of their ability to tear the church down, tear it apart, and because they bring, our words bring either judgment or praise from God upon ourselves. Being careful, therefore, isn't merely... And it's not even mainly meant to be an exercise of the will, but a taking hold of the heart, an evaluation of the heart. Let me say this. I'm going to say it a little bit later as well. But Grace, what this means is almost always before it comes out of your mouth and you say it to someone else, you said it to yourself a number of times earlier. The real battle isn't what comes out, but the real battle is what first is what, is what you're allowing to rattle around in your head and in your heart. Fourth thing, while we all know that we ought to be careful with our speech, we also all know, if you've ever tried, that doing so is hard. That's the fourth aspect of James's argument. Being really careful with how we talk is for all of God's people, but it's also very hard for everyone. In fact, he goes so far as to say no one has perfect speech control. We see this in verse 2 and then again in 7 and 8. For we all stumble, we all sin in many ways, all Christians. We, we stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. What that means is of all the things that are difficult to control in our flesh, the tongue, our speech, is the hardest. If you can control your tongue, every other aspect of your sanctification will fall into place. But you can't. And neither can I, not completely anyway. For every kind of beast and bird and of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. If we are contemplating doing something exceedingly hard but optional, picture running a marathon. You, you start you know, talking, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about running a marathon. Well, if, if, if you're talking about doing something hard but optional, someone might warn you of how difficult it really is in order to talk you out of it. Have you contemplated the fact that your toenails are likely to fall off? And have you contemplated the fact that you're going to chafe in places that you didn't even know were there? And have you contemplated the fact that it's going to take hours and hours and hours? to? You might be trying to talk them out of it. But a warning of the difficulty of something that's required is different. That's what James is doing here. He's not trying to talk you out of something. What he's trying to do is warn you 
to count the cost, to be careful. It's not meant to give us a way out of speaking well or speaking rightly or, or putting our tongues in check, but it's to give us the appropriate opportunity to prepare for the inevitable battle that will come. That it, that it is sometimes hard to do what God commands is not an excuse not to do it. James was offering a warning so that his readers might get out of or avoid altogether a pit so common to man. Grace, there are so many reasons it's easy to be a trash talker. There are so many reasons. Trash talking is the ever-increasing language of our day. It's usually the easiest path to take. All you got to do is just talk like everyone else. Sadly, it is often what we hear, even in more low-key ways in the church. Not always so low-key, but usually more low-key. We, we, we've got these clever ways of talking trash that don't quite sound like we're talking trash. Usually like a prairie quest, gossip in the form of prairie quest or something. But James wanted his readers to avoid the easier route, to act differently, to carefully guard every word that they uttered. And to help his readers do so, he warned them how hard it would be. Harder than any other discipline. Harder than taming any animal. You ever try to tame a chicken? We've got a few of them. That's not easy, right? And that's not even the hardest. It's harder than that. That they might not engage in the battle unprepared for its fierceness. It's easy to speak words of harm and it's easy to speak words of harm and hard to constantly speak words of healing. Nevertheless, James charged his readers, speak words of life, grace. Lastly, and finally, this is sort of his main point. For all these reasons, most people should not be teachers within the church. He, he started with this, we'll conclude with it. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You've seen his reasoning. Speaking is infused with power that is remarkable. It can do great harm. It's hard for everyone to keep it in check. There's a lot at stake when we speak, and a teacher is mainly a speaker. And so be careful. Count the cost. Know what's at stake. You'll be judged with greater scrutiny. Let me say it a little different way. Since teachers necessarily speak more about more significant things than non-teachers, and since it's really hard for everyone to guard their speech in a manner pleasing to God, and since there is a lot at stake in getting our speech wrong, and since teachers will be held to a higher speech standard, God's people ought to be really careful about aspiring to the office of teacher and in who we appoint to be teachers. What's at stake is both great, <laughs> great difficulty or goodness for both the hearer and the teacher. In case you didn't already know, all of this is one significant reason why we so, maybe frustratingly, why we go so frustratingly at times slow and bringing men into eldership or people into teaching roles in, in general. It can take a long time to train and evaluate how people use their words and what effect they have on others. Please soberly keep these things in mind as you contemplate a teaching role. It's not to dissuade necessarily. It's a, it's a neat gift. And everyone who is called by God to teach should teach in the appropriate place. But it is to say in proportion to your faith and with great sobriety. James means his words to slow our roll, <laughs> drive us to pray, lead us to repentance, protect the church, and ensure that only those who rightly handle the word of God for the glory of God would be put, put in positions of public teaching. So here's the real practical. A couple of quick things. 
where the role of teaching is primarily but certainly not exclusively given to men within the local church. It falls primarily but certainly not exclusively on women in the home, at least during the kids' younger years. So on this Mother's Day, therefore, let us all lean way in to these few specific applications. Number one, love God. Love him. Love him with all of you, your heart, with all that you have. If you want to learn to obey what James is commanding here, start by loving God with all that you have. Since your words flow from your hearts, let's do everything we can to develop hearts that are pleasing to God so that they can produce words that are pleasing to God. On this Mother's Day, again, please, please focus mainly on loving God so that you can let it leak out in your words in love for others. Second, be slow to speak. One of the most consistent themes in the Bible and even in James, and the most obvious application for this text, is to talk less. <laughs> That's one I'm, I put that one in just for me. Listen, 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 and then, when necessary, talk. Third, when you do talk, Carefully learn the kinds of things God means you to say. That's a big deal. You might want to write that down. When you do talk, carefully learn the kinds of things God means you to say. Be a person of the word of God. James's main charge is to avoid ungodly speech, but the rest of the Bible commands us to speak and it tells us what to say. We need to be people who speak, but we need to do so as people who are ambassadors of the king. Our message and our words are not our own. They belong to King Jesus. Number four, when you do talk, let your words be intentional with the aim of building people up. Even when a rebuke is necessary, and the Bible commands us to do that sometimes, the aim is never vengeance. It's never to get back at you or to be the ultimate justice maker. When you do talk, let your words be intentional for building up. Even when a rebuke is necessary, the aim must be eventual lifting up. Moms, this is especially true when your kids are at their worst. In church, this is especially true when sinners are at their worst. I wrote down sinnerist, but that's not a word. Lastly, fifthly, first and most, talk about the gospel. Tell people of Jesus and the good news that he can rescue them from their sin and reconcile them to God. Tell them that God will welcome them into everlasting life because Jesus took the full measure of punishment for their sins and, and grace do all of that in confidence since we know that God has infused those words with sufficient power to save. James helps us to see that you're lighting a fuse that can destroy big chunks of God's people. But all of that is because God has put power sufficient to save people, to bring them from death to life through Jesus Christ. So let's speak the words of the cross, the words of the gospel in confidence.